Hello, I am Max Volk. Wait, how do I do this again? <laughs> Hi, this is Scriptlock, and we talk about storytelling and video games here. I'm Max Volkman. And I'm Nick Volkman. Uh, today's guests are returning guests, Ashley Swadowski and Graham Resnick. Ashley is currently the character art director at Bad Robot Games and was the character art director at Naughty Dog, where she was also lead character concept artist on The Last of Us Part Two, Uncharted 4 Thief's End, and Uncharted The Lost Legacy. And she was also a concept artist on The Last of Us Left Behind. Graham is a writer, director, and sound designer who was a writer on Supermassive Games Until Dawn, Until Dawn Rush of Blood, Hidden Agenda, The Inpatient, and most recently, The Dark Pictures Man of Medan. And before I get to our first question, I'd like to say that everything I say here represents my opinion and not the views of or opinions of Insomniac Games or Sony. And yeah, uh, today we're going to talk about horror storytelling because Graham obviously enjoys it quite a lot. But also, Ashley is a huge fan, as will quickly become apparent, I expect. And thank you two for coming on today. Hey, hi. Thanks for having me. And yeah. Graham. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> thank happy you. to have you back. <laughs> thank you. Um, so we'll start with like, what attracts both of you to horror in general? And what type of horror do you like? And Ashley, go first. Ooh, okay. Uh, I think that probably what attracts me to horror most is as a as a storytelling medium, it largely focuses on very human um, experiences. Uh, and those are largely more negative experiences perhaps or things that we don't uh, often want to focus on as people. Uh, and so I think it, it's an opportunity to explore internal feelings and, and a safe space. Uh, and as far as, you know, the, wait, what was the second question? Sorry, Max. <laughs> what, what type of horror do you like? What type of horror do I like? I like psychological horror best. That's, that's my jam. Awesome. Have you always liked horror? Yes, always. Um, you know, it was a struggle for my mom because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you want to shield young, innocent eyes from. But I insisted and would stay up late and watch Tales from the Crypt and uh, Body Bags and whatever, you know, whatever I could. Freddy Krueger. Um, body Bags. Body Bags. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so carpenter deep cut. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I've always loved it uh, since I was really small. Do you remember what got you hooked? Hmm. It probably, I'm thinking it probably was something like Nightmare on Elm Street. And I don't remember when I first saw it or where I was, but I think that, you know, that that was kind of some of some of my earliest memories of horror. Incidentally, not my favorite genre of horror, but what kind of pulled me in and, you know, made me feel very strange as a young person and want to investigate more of what those feelings of fear meant to me. Yeah. And Graham, what attracts you to horror? Man, this is a hard question. Um, <laughs> uh, ev uh, everything that uh, Ashley said, um, <laughs> I, you know, it, it's, uh, it's something I, I, I grapple with all the time, especially because I, tend to think of myself sometimes as a horror filmmaker, horror storyteller when it feels convenient. And then I feel guilty about that because then I'm like, am I a horror? I have friends who are way more into horror as a tonality, like as a, as a, as like a personal brand, you know, than, than I do, uh, or than I am. Um, but it's, you know, hearing what Ashley's saying, I think like the thing that 
that got me into filmmaking and into storytelling in the first place, like at a very early age, was also horror and seeing things like like Tales from the Crypt and watching USA Up All Night um, with Gilbert Gottfried and Rhonda Shear. Um, <laughs> and like, I, you know, I, I have a it's like I have two different brains about the whole thing. There's like my intellectual, intellectual experimental filmmaker, uh, uh, literate, uh, you know, the well-read side of me. That's like, well, I love David Lynch and Roman Polanski horror, that kind of thing. But then there's the other part of me that's just like, I loved watching Carpenter movies and, uh, later getting into Argento and getting into, um, Tales from the Crypt and Nightmare on Elm Street and all that stuff. They, they, horror was like where the party was at. It yeah. was fun. It was just like a good time. Yeah. And it could turn on a dime and be as impactful emotionally and as unmooring psychologically as any of the other genres. But you were allowed to be enjoying it at the same time. It wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't something that felt like homework. <laughs> if that makes sense. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and didn't also feel... Um... Uh, didn't feel like it was not allowed. It felt accessible. Yeah. Yeah. It was like bringing everybody in. And I mean, like weirdly, and he's such the, the butt of everyone's joke because he's the crypt keeper, but the crypt keeper was like the, the, the Joe cool of, uh, of horror, just getting everyone to, to smoke <laughs> yeah. those horror cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the Joe, Joe Camel. I'm sorry. Joe Camel. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and like, as a kid, you were just like, what are the, what is this fucking insane character wearing party hats and blowing like noisemakers and also scaring the shit out of you? It was great. He was so disgusting too. I remember. And, and yet I was, I don't know. It felt like a weird kinship with him. I was like, this guy's cool. Um, <laughs> I feel safe. I feel safe with the crypt keeper. These stories are scary, but this guy's cool. <laughs> It's weird that the Crypt Keeper was the role model for a lot yes, of people. <laughs> right. I mean, looking back, it makes a lot of sense. But <laughs> yeah. He would have been canceled today. Yeah, that's true. He's not a very good role model. Nope. Crypt Keeper, probably my earliest traumatic experience, I think, of like, I don't even remember which uh, short it was or episode, but there was one with like a girl who got like a disfigured face and had to wear like a white mask over her face. And I remember a shot of her in an empty door like in a doorway like down a hallway and in our house we had to go upstairs to our bedroom there was a hallway at the end of the uh when you get to the second floor and i would hold my hand over my right eye so i didn't see down the hallway because i just think that she'd be down there (laughs) (laughs) and then go and hide under the covers amazing i always think of this one episode i don't remember what it was called um and i'm probably going to misremember the story but uh the thing that i remember most is somebody being murdered in a soap factory and being dumped, the body being dumped in a vat of soap and coming out as bar soap that Jeez. I think it was, I can't remember if, you know, if it, were, it was like a lover scorn story or something, but uh, the person takes the soap back to their home and has a shower and I think as they're like showering with the soap, very weird, I don't know why they were doing this, this weird power move, but um, they started to like melt or something. I don't, again, don't know why that was. And there was like an eyeball in the soap, but that for some reason familiar. that really upset me. And I remember like not using bar soap for the longest time <laughs> for fear that I would find something. In it. I, I, 
that was that like EC Comics thing, which has always stuck with me and still sticks with me. Like that that morality, weird, twisted morality play yeah. uh, that is in all those Tales from the Crypt and Creep shows and stuff. And yeah. and then yeah, just st- shit that sticks with you. Like similarly, the Cat's Eye mm. uh, with uh, very. I think was it the first Drew Barrymore? It was really young Drew Barrymore, but there was one segment with a little like gnome or like yes. weird elf that comes out of the molding. And so any any room I was ever in as a kid for years that had that little like strip of molding along the bottom of the wall, I would just be fucking terrified. I know exactly um, what you mean. I remember that very vividly. Yeah. It's like a weird, super creative and visceral image. And uh, horror in the eighties was just full of that stuff that really like made you afraid of the world around you. Yeah. You're right. And Graham, to go back to what you were said before about, or being able to be emotionally devastating too. Do you think horror is the most versatile genre? Well, I think it, it depends on whether or not you consider horror a genre or a tool. And I think uh, as a genre, when it's, um, uh, for lack of a better word, diminished to that, no. But uh, as a tool, it's uh, you know present in all genres. Because horror is an emotional state. And when horror is used really well, uh, you can – the way I like to think about it is – sorry, this is such a long-winded, insane way of thinking about this thing. but uh, (laughs) Do it. uh, uh, I'm spiraling out. I'm I'm, uh, thinking about hot peppers. Um, Hot peppers are a way to have – I've probably said this on the podcast before because it's something that comes up a lot in my brain. Hot peppers are free pain. You you can get pain and get endorphins from them, but they're not actually hurting you. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a trick. And similarly, horror and movies in general and narratives in general make you feel things that you're not really feeling in the way that you would if it was actually happening to you, but you're feeling an emotional uh, uh, echo of the, the things that are happening in the narrative. And I think horror is like one of the most immediately and easily achievable uh, ways of like opening up those senses to then allow you to have those experiences. Um, and that's, that's not a bad thing at all. It's like a, um, you know, it's like throwing a, a spicy pepper into a, a, a salad, you know, you can have a, a comedy, but as soon as you throw some horror in there, suddenly you're feeling everything more acutely. Mm-hmm. You have not said that before. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's great. I do a lot of podcasts in front of my mirror, so I don't know. <laughs> What type of horror do you like most, Graham? Well, this is similarly like the thing where it's like depending on whether you're considering horror a genre or a, a, a flavor, if you will. Um, I, I think when it comes to dramatic narrative, getting into the sublime is my favorite thing. And that's why Lynch and Cronenberg and, and people like that will – oh, and, and Nick Rogue, you know, like that kind of thing is to me – the like the greatest achievement but then on the other hand i i will just i think john carpenter's the best filmmaker who's ever lived you know i i <laughs> the prince of darkness i think is like the best of both worlds it's a party and it hits the sublime place and it's like it just doesn't get better than that awesome finally watched prince of darkness for the first time last year oh what do you think so so good it's it's an astounding movie um ashley have you seen it i haven't no highly recommended it. it is it's maligned and beloved in his uh, catalog because it doesn't really have a main character. It doesn't have a main hero. It, it, you know, it doesn't have like the, the snappy 
uh, one-liners or like fight scenes of they live or something, or, you know, but it's got the most, it's got the, the most incredible sense of sublime existential terror and like supernatural, weird dreamscape quantum physics stuff. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's that cool. you're speaking my language. I love all of that. And <laughs> oh, I love man. Carpenter. So I will definitely check it out. Yeah. I missed that one somehow. It is. Yeah. It's, it, it's like, it was promoted for so long because Alice Cooper has like a tiny role in it, and mm. it's, but it's got nothing. He plays like a, a peripheral. He's like King of the Hobos. <laughs> yeah. Which, but like not even a speaking role really. It's just like in the background. Ashley, for anyone who follows your Twitter, they will quickly find out that you are a huge fan of Resident Evil and Silent Hill. So what is it about those series that you like so much? First of all, please don't follow me on Twitter. I'm very embarrassed. <laughs> I don't even know why I have a Twitter or why I continue to post on it. Because um, it's great. But, <laughs> but I do. I, I tend to. I don't share uh, much about my life or my feelings on social media. So I tend to like stick to these very specific things. And I'm, I'm sure people have this perception of me as just being this very one track minded person, but I promise they have a lot of interests outside of uh, Resident Evil and Silent Hill. But, um, but it's, it's a cool place to meet other people that do as well. And I have quite a few like uh, peers and, and um, you know, people I've met that also enjoy uh, both of those IPs. Uh, and they they are some of my favorite games and and they're very dear to me because they you know are largely responsible for me i feel going down the path of of making games and i think even the the types of games that i've made in my career you know i i i gravitated towards those games because of what silent hill in particular sort of opened up I think for games, which was this possibility to tell these very deep human stories about very imperfect people, uh, about very taboo subjects. And, um, you know, they still, I think, are deserving of respect for paving the way for a lot of games now that I think we we look at as being some of the, the more... Um, mature or uh, nuanced uh, examples of what games can be. Graham, do you have a, are you a big fan of those games? I mean, you, you probably played at least Silent Hill, I figure. Yeah. And, and, and just listening to what, what Ashley said, I, I agree and think that I, I came to them kind of late, weirdly. Um, I was aware of them as they were coming out. Both of them came out kind of towards the end of when I was in high school and going to college. Um, as far as I can remember, is yeah, late latest high school. So they're both the PS One games, right? Mm-hmm. The first ones, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I I came I I was always aware of them and 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 uh, curious. Um, and Silent Hill I came to first and played the first three. Uh, there was like a collection for it, I think, for PS Three. I played it probably ten years ago now. Um, and I was like, I was blown away, and it was a huge like missing piece of the puzzle for me because I could then see how much it um impacted other things uh in the both in movies and in in games um and kind of like weirdly fit into this trajectory of games and movies that I like like coming as a, like a Twin Peaks fan and liking this idea of parallel universes and like shadow dimensions mm-hmm. um and also like having grown up with uh Zelda and like 
Link to the Past was one of my favorite games growing up. And I there's like a direct line in my head from Link to the Past to Silent Hill because they both have that like there's the normal version of the world and then there's the bad version of the world. And you can jump back and forth between them. Um, and I didn't like realize there was this like very clean trajectory through all these <laughs> games, um, which was really cool to fill in. And I'm, I have a, I have a big gap in my games knowledge from basically like 1998 to like 2008, <laughs> um, when I was in college and like a, a very broke filmmaker in New York. Um, and it's weird because I'm still filling it in even now in 2022, but those games, like, I, like, I don't know if there's anything in the last 10, 15 years that has had as immediate of an impact on both film and television, or sorry, film and television and games, than games like Silent Hill and, and Resident Evil. They really like, I don't know, they, yeah, they seem like huge towering influences. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like most of the, the people that are at the point in their career where they're spearheading projects uh, or just, you know, part of a dev team on them, um, you know, those were extremely influential games that they played when that they when they were younger. And so, yeah, I, I feel like they permeate through a lot of games, uh, but also films. And, um, you know, I mean, Silent Hill, I think, was interesting because it took so many cues from film and, you know, had a lot of very obvious influences, whether it was, you know, novels or, or um, artwork, artists, painters, like Francis Bacon. But the... Um, you know, I, I think of movies like The Void, which I'm pretty sure the filmmakers had said that, you know, Silent Hill was a direct reference and you watch it and you can see it. Um, it's just really cool. It's a cool yeah. movie, by the way. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's like there's a there's been an ongoing dialogue for a long time between movies and games. And I, like it, it's weird because when you're just playing games or you're just a consumer of games or a consumer of movies, as we all are, you don't immediately see that stuff. And then you look at, at interviews with people who were making the games and they're like, Oh yeah, this is totally, we were obsessed with uh, Jacob's ladder and twin yep. peaks. And that's mm -hmm. how we got silent Hill. And you're like, yeah. Oh my God, what? Okay. <laughs> I don't know if they were, I know they were like twin peaks. I don't know. If no, that's, Jacob's ladder that's was. true. Oh yeah. Jacob's ladder. There's some yeah. like, yeah, direct, um, direct things yeah. that were taken from Jacob's right. ladder. Which, sure. which then comes from like bacon and, you know, like, yeah. so it's, it's, there's a, a really neat back and forth that I, I don't know. I think like, I think we're all kind of uh, around a, a similar age, or at least we're not uh, um, too far apart from all of uh, each other in age. And and it still feels like to me, we're we've got the lingering feel of like growing up in an era where games are treated like something that doesn't matter or something very mm -hmm. throwaway. Yeah. But everyone younger, it's so ingrained with their experience of what the world is and what mm -hmm. to expect from the world that um, it like both validates the things that we grew up with and, and, and worshiped at, and put on the same pedestal as music and, and film and TV. Mm -hmm. um, but I still, like, I still have those hangups about it. Like, well, it's, you know, it's just games. No one, no one must care about this, but no, that's not true. Yeah. 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 And I think the more that the medium embraces what it is, that it's a interactive medium yeah. Uh, the more, you know, intriguing it becomes, the the yeah. more of a its own identity it forms, and I think it's still finding itself. I mean, it's still relatively young, especially compared to film. Yeah, yeah. and there's a weird thing that's happened many, many times over, and continues to happen, and and I can only speak about it in vague terms because of my relationship to things, and I know 
Ashley, Max, and Nick all have relationships to these same types of things. I'm so speaking around the bush here, but video game <laughs> adaptations in film and TV. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's such a weird thing because when a video game or an interactive piece of content is made, that's the that's the me- the medium is the message, and that's the mm-hmm. thing. Like, it's it's meant to be that thing. But then film and TV comes and says, "Well, we're going to do an adaptation of it," and I think that's absolutely valid. But it is interesting watching the continued growing pains mm-hmm. uh, of trying to figure out, well, what is the best way to make a linear, non-interactive version of a story that is intended to be about a relationship to a player's connection and interactivity with that thing? And yeah. I'm saying this the week that, you know, Uncharted is doing well. And, you know, like it's, uh, you know, and there's so many other games, like, I mean, there is no right answer to it. It's just interesting to watch everybody try to figure that out. Cause it, I don't, I don't know it is. Out. No, no, I totally agree with you. And I think the, the challenge is that, you know, so many beloved games, uh, at least ones that have come out in the past 10, 15 years have taken so many cues from film that then to adapt it into a film. I think when people see it, they're like, well, I've already seen this before because it was referencing film, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's not really a new thing. And then you've taken out the interactive portion of it. So I think that there is, you know, it always feels maybe a little bit awkward in that respect. So I think it's, it's still, you know, whatever that piece is, uh, that's not, not successfully translating, at least for me. Yeah. I I think there's, well, uh, you know, it's been, seven years since until dawn came out. So I think, I feel like I can share this without it being, uh, anything that's covered by anything. But like, for example, we, we were, uh, Larry and I were approached by people wishing to make an until dawn, uh, movie, um, and asked what our take would be. I mean, there's nothing formal really. It was just, you know, uh, the powers that be investigating the possibility of this. Mm -hmm. And we, we came up with a, a thing and I, and I had a very specific point of view, which was that until dawn is an interactive movie, which mm-hmm. is asking the players to be the director and got and writers in collaboration with the developers in creating their version of a story that feels like a movie. So then if you're going to end up making a movie of that, that kind of truncates everything down to two hours or less, um, but doesn't involve the, the viewer, uh, in a meaningful way, you're essentially saying, well, this is the Canon version and everybody else's version is just their, you know, their, their head, head Canon, or, you know, <laughs> like the thing that's just theirs, you know, and, and it's not the real one. And even though that's not true, my feeling was that players who had this relationship with until dawn might see the movie that way. And then, well, what's the point of making it? Because you're trying to get like, you're, you're making something based on popular IP, but the people who like that IP are going to go, well, that's not my version of it. That's just the, the you know, the one that you guys are saying is is the real version, and you're invalidating ours. Again, this is like a vague and not entirely true thing, but like, I was hoping we would be able to find a way to adapt something like Until Dawn, something that was interactive and had that relationship with a, a player, and represent that kind of relationship in an adaptation. And at, well, I. Who knows what's going on with that anymore? So I can't really say too much. But um, what we had come up with wasn't really what uh, was going to work at that time. Um, but you never know. I mean, I feel like there's still 
ways to do that in linear narratives. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's always interesting seeing what studios take as like, what are the key th- points from the video game to put in the movie? Right. Like I remember the the newest Tomb Raider when they, there's a moment where she does literally like a color puzzle in one of the tubes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's always very surface. It's always very like, yeah. well, in video games, they uh, <laughs> have to press buttons. So yeah, we'll have a right. scene where the character has to press a bunch of buttons. Yeah. It never, it never really feels connected to the experience. I think the player had from the game, uh, which can be so, so personal as well. You know, you can't target every fan's experience and what they played, tap into that feeling that they got from it. I I think there's a lot of possibility in long form series. I mean, what what's happening with Netflix and uh, some other, you know, Amazon Prime or whatever, um, you know, because these games can be pretty long. Yeah. And so con- consolidating, you know, a 30 hour game. Uh, distilling it down into you know an hour and a half to two hour movie that's a huge ask and and you're gonna have to leave a lot out and change quite a lot i I saw the resident evil movie recently the newest one welcome to raccoon city Um, and i don't really have many thoughts on it um but I, i i thought it was interesting because they chose to combine the first and the second game uh you know which I don't remember how long each of those games were 10 hours or so. And Mm. the second one has two to four campaigns, depending on how you play it. But, you know, I'm thinking, God, that's why, (laughs) why would you do such a thing? I'm sure they had their reasons, you know, it was definitely sold as a more accurate adaptation of the game compared to the Paul W.S. Anderson. Yes. Uh, I do. Yeah. I mean, I think that their references were more connected for sure. And the characters, um, you know, felt a little bit more true to their game counterparts, but it's a very beloved IP. And anytime you, you mess around with that, I mean, it's, it's a really hard, I'm sure. Again, mm-hmm. it. adaptations in general are, are such a tricky, tricky thing, obviously with any, any type of adaptation. Like my, my go-to example is Philip K. Dick, who I'm a huge, huge mm-hmm. fan of, and I've read basically all of it and seen many, many of the adaptations and, as much as I love Blade Runner and think it's the best film that has been adapted from Philip K. Dick, I genuinely, genuinely think Total Recall is the most accurate, and, and it's a different thing. It's like yeah. Blade Runner is not accurate, but it's a great adaptation because it just changes, changes what that story was and hones in on a little slice of it and then expands it into a feature to make it feel like a, a thing that's just inspired by the original. Total Recall has absolutely nothing to do with that story in almost any way, and yet it feels the closest to any random Philip K. Dick that you'd pick up, because that's the tone and style and feel, and it feels true to the the, the voice of Philip K. Dick and the things that he's trying to do and say. Um, and I think that's true of games, too. And I think, like, sometimes the people who are making the adaptations understand what the message was that was being... Um, explored via that original medium and then can kind of translate into a new medium rather than just picking surface details. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, obviously I'm sure Ashley can't say anything about this, but I'm very excited to see what happens with the last of us because I know that it's the people who were involved with the original thing. So it's like, there are times when you can tell that, that people understand what the underlying idea is. And there are times when it's, uh, 
you know, the Mario Brothers, which is a crazy <laughs> movie, and I I love for what it is, but it's also just like okay. <laughs> They just went and just did a thing. That's my favorite one. That's my favorite uh, it's the, it's game great. adaptation. <laughs> I would say the first Mortal Kombat movie is like a perfect adaptation That's of like, good. yes, yeah. they they yeah. matched the tone of the game and knew what like they knew exactly I, what they were doing. Totally. And like, there's so many things that like then kind of went back in the conversation with that game. Like they had that that whole like feel of going like Mortal Kombat <laughs> and like the song. Like we all think of that, and yeah. that's you know, for sure, it's intertwined. I think that's a really good point that you made, Graham, about, you know, uh, being able to encapsulate the feeling of something, you know, in an adaptation. Hmm. Uh, and I, I would agree that I think that that's, well, sorry, I don't know if this was the exact point you were trying to make, but but I feel that going in that direction, knowing that you couldn't, you can't possibly make a true adaptation of a game and you couldn't possibly honor every fan and what they find valuable about that game. Um, but to approach it more from, you know, what, what did this embody? What's the spirit of this thing? It doesn't really matter so much what the characters are named or how you cast them or, you know, what they wear. Uh, but does it actually feel the way that that game made you feel? Yeah. And I, I, I know a lot of people, get very very hung up a lot of fans and i am i've been this person also like get very hung up on oh wolverine's a really tall uh super handsome guy in the <laughs> x-men movies not a short kind of ugly uh, hairy guy hairy guy you know who's got a chip on his shoulder what the hell that's not my wolverine and then i you know then i wasn't 19 anymore and didn't feel that way um but uh you know, and people still argue about the fucking Jack Reacher shit. Yeah. Like, who cares? <laughs> like Tom Cruise was great in that first movie. And it, like he said to some guy, he wanted to drink his blood from a boot. And I laughed in the theater and it was awesome. <laughs> um, so like it, it, I understand that people have uh, that relationship to games also, but that's mm-hmm. like, that's a, it's still kind of a surface relationship. It's not like, and I think a lot of decisions are made because people are afraid of that reaction. Yeah. Not like, now, will you sell like another one is at Preacher, the TV show. I was hmm. really resistant to it at first because I, I grew up with that comic and it was it, it informed so much of my aesthetic and sense of like American Western Americana. Like a, there's just so much I got from that and the idea I had in my head of who these characters were and what they look like. And the first season of the show didn't really do it for me. And then it all kind of clicked and I realized they were going for something that was underneath what I was seeing in the the comic material, mm. but was there. Mm. And they found a different way to explore that in the show. That's and then interesting. that's when it started working for me really well. I love that you brought up Jack Reacher. More people <laughs> should see that movie. <laughs> Werner Herzog is the villain and he's amazing. He's great. He's in like two scenes and kills it. Uh, also, oh, we're not, we're not going to talk about this, but I'm very interested in seeing what Amazon does with that Disco Elysium adaptation. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, I just heard about that. Yeah, because that seems impossible. I it's I I think we've talked about this, but I think that's some of the best writing I've ever seen in any medium in the last ten years. So yeah, yeah, a lot of people would agree. My co writer and Sonic would agree too. <laughs> yeah, um, I want to backtrack a bit uh, to Silent Hill, Resident Evil, just because I was curious and realized this. Uh, both franchises that have had a lot of games over the years and have kind of shifted a, a long time or shifted a lot. Do both of you think that there's still like there's a Resident Evil style of horror and there's a Silent Hill style of horror, or have they? Is it now just changed so much from game to game that 
it kind of just depends on whatever game they're making. I I have so many feelings about this and, you know, I feel like the answer could go in a bunch of different directions. I think that, you know, what these, all these, you know, installments down the line have evolved into for good or for bad, the idea of trying to recreate some of the original material I don't know that that's possible because I think so much of it was about that particular group of people that made that thing with that, their combined interests and their, you know, whatever their conflicts were on their team and their disagreements. And, um, you know, I don't know that you could ever really make something that would make you feel like Silent Hill 2 did. And, and I don't think you should try, you know, I don't. I think it's fine if, you know, we keep chasing Silent Hill titles or, you know, new Resident Evil installments, but I never expect them to make me feel the way that the first couple games and either IP did. Uh, and, and I like all of the subsequent games for various reasons, but those original ones, especially because they embodied more of a survival horror approach than any of the later installments. Those, you know, they've lost a lot of that down the line for a number of reasons, I'm sure. But I I just, I think that going back to this idea of something being like having the spirit of something, I'm more interested in the spiritual successors of those games than I am that, you know, that title, that IP, um, yeah, I just don't, I don't know that you can ever really go back to what it was because it was a very specific group of people. Would you agree, Graham? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to have a good answer to this, but my knowledge of both franchises is pretty limited. And my knowledge of Silent Hill is limited to one through three and, um, some of Sam Barlow stuff. Um, and the, and uh, Resident Evil, I've, I've really only ever played the second one, the remaster that came out a few years ago, mm. um, which I thought was great. Um, but I think that there's, you know, like like Ashley said, it it it, it captured the zeitgeist of the milieu, yeah. uh, which is a. I'm glad you said yeah right away because I was like, man, this is the, <laughs> the dumbest. This is the dumbest sounding thing I've ever said, but it's these are the words that are coming to my head. Um, but yeah, it's like the group of people and what they were feeling and their energy, and it captured in a lightning in a bottle, and mm-hmm. that's that's what it is. And at the same time, I've had when I've played Silent Hill, uh, particularly two and and three. But especially too, I think just like the 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 feelings of awe and the sublime and the terrifying feelings that came along with that that are so unique that I've never felt I had never felt prior mm-hmm. in a game. I have felt shades of or or um things reminiscent of in a different way when playing other totally different types of games that aren't even hard. Like I had similar feelings when I played The Witness, for example. Um the the Jonathan Blow like it, it just I felt like it was capturing a sense of like, I don't, I'm unmoored. I don't know where mm-hmm. this is going. And I'm so excited to find out what is going to be around this next corner. Mm-hmm. Cause I just don't know. And I, I'm like, I'm, I feel like I'm in capable hands that it's going to show me. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think there's, there's a like specifics 
that happen in those kinds of games. But then I think there's just that like feeling of everybody firing on all cylinders and creating something that's even greater than the some of a part some of its parts and like you know making something that stands the test of time and blah blah blah, blah all that. But like yeah. I think that that's something that we can always keep repeating and trying to achieve and you know. Yeah, I think I think standing the test of time is is you know definitely something that these games do in a number of ways. I also think that you know again trying to tap into whatever those games were in 1997, 1998, 1999, you know, the world is not the same place and though you know a lot of things they dealt with were more abstract or you know universal maybe necessarily about politics at the time or anything like that. Uh, I, I think that having the goal to create something that's relevant now would be more poignant than, than trying to recreate whatever those games did at that time. Uh, I think horror is just that way. You know, I think you can go back and you can watch horror, which I think often does instill a lot of societal political, you know, everything that's kind of going on at the moment uh, for that, that, that director, that writer, that production team. I think that, you know, that that's what makes those things extremely meaningful uh, and, and relevant for the time that they come out. And I think we could look back at them and, and still think this is a great, you know, this is a great story and, and it's still great to watch. Uh, but I think that, you know, always sort of trying to find what's relevant now is going to make the most powerful story now. But then again, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a writer, so much more interested in Graham's take on something like that. And Max and Nick, yours, your take as well. <laughs> I'm still interested in yours too, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> I'll draw it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you guys come up with, I'll draw it. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat related, but pacing is one of the most important tools for horror storytelling and i was curious how but what both your thoughts would be for how do you pace a horror game when players effectively control the pacing the entire time graham yeah i'm uh, i'm thinking um <laughs> i uh i i sound like i don't have an answer to this but i do i'm just trying to say it in a way that uh um I'll take out all the pause here, oh. Graham, so you'll sound like you're smart. That's okay. You know, I, I, <laughs> uh, leave you them could, in. Yeah, please, please <laughs> leave them in. Seriously, I, there's a, a podcast called, well, it used to be called The Sound of Young America. Now it's called Bullseye by Jesse Thorne, or I've listened to for a long time. And he um, it used to be a radio show, now it's a podcast. He interviewed Ira Glass like 10, 12 years ago or something. And it was one of those interviews that really like has always stuck with me because he was at the beginning of it, he was like, You'll notice that whenever I ask Ira Glass a question, he pauses for a really long time. And normally that gets edited out, but he pauses for so long because he's just thinking about his answer rather than just jumping in and saying nothing that I'm going to leave it all, you know. And so that's always stuck with me. Like it's just, it's worth just thinking about your answers. I apologize. Um, And I think it's, that's just an important thing for, I think anybody on podcasts or interviews is like, it's just good to think about. Mm-hmm. what you're going to say because it's you know rather than just saying nothing which i'm doing right now um <laughs> so what was the question again um how do you pace a horror game when players control the pacing right uh so i i have a a weird answer to this which is i think that 
when you're thinking about how games are interactive versus how movies are not interactive, they're weirdly, in terms of pacing, moment to moment, interactive in a very similar way. And movies can be interactive. Saying that they're not is like kind of a lie. Because my approach to writing uh, whenever I'm in charge of or, or in, like have an impact on on the plot, which I don't always uh, working in games, and, and sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but when I'm writing a film, I do. The idea is to make sure you're always aware as a writer or director of what the audience knows, what they're wondering about, and what they're going to wonder about as soon as they know that answer to that question. And that's pacing. If they're wondering about something and they're interested in it, you've got them. Every second between them having that burning question and having that burning question answered it doesn't exist. It goes away because they're just like, what's that? Oh, I got to know. I got to know. I got to know. And they're not thinking about uh, And like they may feel obstacles to that mm-hmm. and you can play with that um, as long as you're moving them toward and you're, you're uh, you've got their confidence uh, or as long as they have confidence in you that you're going to lead them towards that answer. Um, and the second that you can switch that question for the next question, you can keep moving things along. So the way to do that is almost identical in something that's interactive and something that isn't interactive. It's just about making sure that you're giving them something to wonder who killed this person. Uh, and then as soon as you get a somewhat reasonable answer or a clue to that, the questions then got to be just as exciting. Like, Oh my God, it's a trans-dimensional demon. Uh, what's the deal with that? So like, you've got to just continue to um, do that without painting yourself into a corner. And then I think like in terms of pacing outside of those kinds of questions, it, it really just depends on the type of game or the type of movie. And in a way, like you just have to look at like, uh, well, how long can I get to keep someone wondering about this one question? If it's an exploration section of the game, they're not going to explore if they really got to know what happens mm-hmm. next. You know, they we got to make this a little more narrow or, you know, whatever. Um, that's my weird answer to that question. <laughs> I hope that makes some amount of sense. It does. That's a good answer. That is a good answer. I think that it's, it is a real challenge to 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 for any stories pacing in games, one that that's narrative heavy. Uh, one that has stakes or, you know, is asking the player to be extremely invested in, in a long-term um, payoff, narrative payoff, because, you know, you get the sections of the game where, you know, either there's an inclination to add a lot of exploration or tasks that can easily sidetrack the player. Uh, the other hard thing is, is that people put a controller down that that's less likely with a movie, right? You know, or, or I guess a book is maybe a more fair comparison um, where you may stop at a certain point, walk away. And um, some of that feeling that was built building in the pacing, uh, you can run the risk of losing that. So when the player sits down again, they're thinking, what was I doing? What was, you know, what was the last thing that this person said to me? So, yeah, I, I think that it, it is very challenging in, in games. In my experience, to, to have really good pacing um, from, that, from that narrative perspective. But it's, it's something that I've seen accomplished with varying degrees of success in, in different games. And, you know, I think like Graham said, when you, when you have certain things that, you know, you really want the player to move to quickly, you don't want to lose 
the player funneling them through, sort of forcing them through might be necessary to, to get that emotional payoff. Yeah, I I, th- I think uh, actually Naughty Dog does some of the best job of that that I've seen where there's a lot of exploration. It, it oscillates between um, action and then puzzles, but then also storytelling. And then there are parts for, you know, lengthy stretches of time, almost the f- length of a feature film practically at times it becomes less about interaction and more just about like the story beats and moving them along. And I, I've always felt yeah. that the, uh, you know, in the last uh, 10 years or so, a lot of the games that have come out from Naughty Dog have done that really well. Um, always been impressed by that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that that's a, you know, a huge, um, a huge priority in, in the games that, that I've been involved with at Naughty Dog and, and, you know, that this constant discussion and, you know, people will play and give feedback and say, you know, this, seems sort of nonsensical to have this sort of, you know, the, these uh, dire stakes. And then you're asking me to go do this frivolous task. And you see it a lot in, in games that it can become almost comical. I always think of Red Dead Redemption 1, which I love the Red Dead games. I love them a lot. And, uh, but I always think about, you know, some of the, the story in Red Dead and, and, you know, somebody getting kidnapped whether it was Bonnie or uh, John's wife, you know, but I could just kind of fuck off and go play horseshoes for three hours if I want, or go play card game poker, or go, you know, to tame horses or whatever. And, um, you know, it really, it it made, made the tone of the game a little bit strange in that way. still felt very connected to the characters and very invested in them for sure. You know, but but it would be a huge tonal shift where it's like, oh my god, my family has been kidnapped. I'm gonna go fuck around and <laughs> shoot people in this town for three hours or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that like that flow thing that um, people in games talk about a lot. That like Portal really nailed, and then has become like a really a uh, um, you know like a structural uh, touchstone for a lot of things where it's you know you're just constantly being taught a new thing and then challenged just slightly enough to want to know the next new thing mm-hmm. it's it's like the equivalent of page turning mm-hmm. in books um but then sometimes it's just all so open that and this is such a challenge with open world games and i yeah. i don't usually get i don't fuck around with them too much because <laughs> that's the thing i'll just like be living a life and then you know feel weird that i haven't uh yeah, saved my family. Or yeah, right. <laughs> you know, um, I, like Breath of the Wild was one, like one of the few that I've really mm-hmm. engaged with on a level where I like just I had to do everything and like and I got through it and yeah, um, and and Red Dead Two, although I never finished it, which is terrible. I need, to, <laughs> I need to go back and finish that. Same here. I'm curious. Do either of you think horror games have different rules for horror than horror movies or other kinds of horror media? I do. I, I mean, I think a, a lot of it we've sort of covered in, in some of our tangenting and even going back to this idea that, um, at least with film, and I'd argue with books to, to maybe more so, um, you tend to sit and get through certain parts. And, and though that may be true for games, um, you know, games can ask a lot of you, you know, to get to the next section or to, um, you know, figure out what this mystery is. It could be, you know, an hour long commitment. Um, so, you know, putting, putting the controller down, risking the player, putting the controller down, knowing that they will do that 
I think presents an, an interesting, um, you know, uh, task for the developers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think there's, there's a lot to do also with, with trust in games and, um, something that came up a lot during until dawn and, and, um, subsequent games that were like it, um, for supermassive was that in a film, you can, you can kind of lie to play, uh, lie to viewers and, and show a subjective reality and let that just be the thing that it is and let the whole thing be a lie. And then you, you understand that you're dealing with an unreliable narrator. But the second that you allow agency on the player's part to shape the world of the game, if you've lied to them about what they're doing, they lose their trust in the storytellers. And so you lose all of the power that you've had to do. And this doesn't really pertain to horror so much as just anything, but this is something that like happens mostly in a horror genre, I, I feel like. For example, in Until Dawn, and uh, cover years of years if you haven't played Until Dawn, this is a spoiler, <laughs> um, for the next 15 seconds, I don't know. Josh, Rami Malek's character, uh, turns out to be the 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 killer, quote unquote, and then that actually turns out to be something else. But um, you never get to play him. Uh, until you learn this about him. So if you had been playing him and thinking that you're being stalked by a killer, that would like break the contract uh, between the, the storytellers and the audience and we would lose your trust. And you, you would then not trust anything that happened later uh, in terms of the scares or the unreality or anything because you, uh, yeah, we would have just broken that contract with you. And I think that it's so much deeper in a game uh, than with a movie. You're willing to go with a lot more in an hour and a half or so of a movie. Um, there are still things that will throw an audience out, but um, in a game, it's like, yeah, the second you give the player's agency, it's they own it and you have to respect it. That's a great answer. I think you could also, uh, you know, with film, you can control... Um, you could control more of the, um, you know, how much stimuli the, the audience is getting um, for, for how long, um, you know, and, and when to cut that off, when to bring in music, when to give people a break. Uh, games are harder to do that with, again, because they're so much longer. If you're asking somebody to sit through a 20-hour horror experience, uh, it could be exhausting for people. It can be too much, you know? Um, and so yeah. I think it has to be crafted in a, a very specific way to allow the player the, those moments of rest, um, those moments where they feel safe, um, where they feel in control, uh, and then, you know, juxtapose that with these moments of, of the, the opposite. That, that's a good point. And that's, that's a, a whole different kind of pacing, which is like the pacing of, players as a performer mm -hmm. in a way um the, it's like you're directing an actor as a storyteller and the the player is the the actor or the the performer and and it ties into that idea of respecting their uh engagement with it which in a movie you can just barrage someone for an hour and a half and be like take it or leave it yeah right. uh, yeah and enter the void or yeah. you know uh, tetsuo the iron man like just have fun for an hour and then or you know or don't mm -hmm. um but in a game it's like yeah it's the kiss of death unless you you know, are aware of that. I'm just reminded now I can only play Resident Evil seven in VR for an hour at a time. Because it's just <laughs> too too <much>. stressful. <laughs> so stressful. I did play some of that in VR. I forgot. Yeah. I did when that first came out. Yeah. That was pretty cool. And yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. I loved it. It was yeah. amazing. I should really beat it, but 
scared the shit out of me. Yeah. I have a really interesting um, kind of love-hate relationship with, with a first-person camera perspective. I think I not interested in most genres for games but in horror uh, again complex because i'm a character person i want to see the character i don't i don't necessarily want to be the character uh you know i want to watch james unravel and go you know discover things and um be his own person uh, and i'm just sort of there to push him along on his journey but I've, I've played a lot more over the years. I've played a lot more first-person horror, um, like Outlast or Alien Isolation, PT. Um, the Bloober games are, are really great. I don't know if you guys have gotten a chance to play the Blair Witch no. game um, or Layers of Fear. Layers um, of Fear is awesome, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so ha- forcing the, the, the first-person perspective, I think, really... Uh, does something psychologically where where now you do feel arguably more immersed in the experience and and it can be overwhelming you know i i'm not much of a a baby i mean i I've, i love horror and and i play through just about everything no problem but outlast and alien isolation were too fucking scary like i couldn't do it (laughs) i was terrified and granted like any sort of like nemesis style game or something is i don't i don't like being chased and you know same here not not yeah they they have a particular set of stakes which cuts to the the very deepest fear of longtime gamers especially people who grew up with 80s and 90s games which is i don't want to fucking do shit over again yeah right i just don't and so it's like whenever i have that like alien isolation is great and it's but like the true fear, the true underlying stakes for me are not like any type of actual thing involved in the narrative. It's like, oh, I'm going to have to do this section again. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. Um, but it, it's so effective yeah. um, that I, I can't knock it. It's just like it, I, I don't think I finished it because I I got to the point where I was like, I just can't put myself through it. Anymore. Yeah, it's, it it's overwhelming. Stressful. Yeah, it's too stressful. Outlast, especially, and and you know the having to run and find batteries for your camera so you can see yeah. the pressure of either of those things. Um, you know, was so intense, and, and I think it was very successful uh, in, in doing it. I did actually finish that game, but it took me quite a while, and I I played it standing up most of the time. I felt safer for some reason doing it that way. You could, you could bolt you could it yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I didn't feel like it could it could catch me off guard. Um, but yeah, and and uh, PT as well. I don't know if you guys played PT. It's yes. so great. Oh. I literally haven't sold my PS3. Yes, so right? I mean, every once in a while, I'll check it be like, okay, it's still there. Everything's okay. Uh, but I won't play it. I refuse. It's too scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I played through all of it, and I, I did uh, I beat it. Uh, that game, that, that, the idea of a game like that is, is so interesting. And you, and you see just how obsessed people are with this idea that that, was, that game was going to revitalize the IP. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, whether or not it, it could, who knows, uh, people have, have put so much on it. Playing it was, I mean, it really was terrifying. And Kojima is, uh, you know, he, he just has a really interesting game designer brain and, and just the weird quirky shit that you had to, to do and the collaborative experience of it where, you know, people were spoke different languages, were communicating with each other about what these messages said in different languages to try to solve puzzles and 
all that stuff was really interesting. I, to this day, wonder not whether or not it would have, you know, been the next Silent Hill, whatever that means. But how would that have scaled, I think, is such a more interesting question to me. Like, could you maintain what that demo showed? Is that something that you could make a whole game about or out Mm of? That beating PT, like getting the real ending with uh, our friends was maybe one of my favorite like game experiences of the last 10 years of doing all the weird shit, like screaming to a microphone and turning around. (laughs) Um, But uh, with Alien Isolation, the people at Frictional, the studio that made the Amnesia games, they did a great blog post, or I think it was Thomas Grip, who we've had on this podcast, talked about Alien Isolation and just the, the mechanic of how it's terrifying that you can get killed while you're saving your game playing Isolation. <laughs> but once you get killed and you have to redo that whole section, how it just instantly kills the tension that you had yeah. before. And I didn't play their newest Amnesia game, so I was very curious seeing how they, if they were able to find a solve for doing that. But they did a Soma as well. Is that the same? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Soma is one of my favorite games of the last ten years as well. And, same. And, Love it. And it because it 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 eliminates it kind of takes what Alien Isolation did in terms of atmosphere and fear, but then removes that specific approach to the stakes, where you don't feel like oh I'm going to have to do stuff again, but you kind of feel the same thing about like being chased, mm-hmm. but the but it doesn't have the same ramifications, so it like. It defangs it a little, but in the service of getting to a more interesting place narratively. Yeah, uh, they, yeah those mm-hmm. guys are really cool. I haven't played the Amnesia game, so I've got to do that. They uh, seem too scary for me. <laughs> <laughs> Were you about to say you played them, Ashley? Oh, I, I know. Um, uh, my husband's downloaded everything for me, and he's like, you have to play these games. I don't understand why you haven't played them yet. And get around to it eventually. But yeah, maybe I'm too scared also. <laughs> Have you played Soma? I haven't played Soma. That's that, that's oh, another yeah. one, you know, that, like, again, I mean, I know you guys were praising it. A lot of people say really good things about it. It's very narrative. It's very sci-fi. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, that that one, like, is very easy. And it's, it's short. It's like two or three hours, I think. Okay. You can get through the whole thing. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll check I'm it pretty out. sure. I remember playing it a night or two. Maybe, maybe I just didn't get up. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, without spoiling anything, it's like. Just the type of dread horror they do is incredible, that's and great. there's no no combat. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Ashley, uh, this is coming out of this question comes from the amazing Sound Hill album art you made for Mondo. But does your process change when you're making spooky art? Yes, it does. You know, I I, I definitely have a range with my art. Um, uh, they're doing different different subjects I like to approach in a different way. And I think with horror, you know, I, I have a very vivid picture in my head of, of how I want to approach it more so than, than any other uh, subject that I try to tackle as an artist. It just feels very clear to me, the lighting and the, the brushwork and the shapes and all of that stuff, you know, feels like it needs to be handled in a very specific way. So, so I tend to approach horror content in, in a more sort of rendered um, and maybe maybe sometimes abstract, not always if it's character, not so much. But yeah, I, I you know, I really, really love the opportunity to, to work on those album covers and, and getting to pay homage to some of the artists from those IPs that, that really influenced me, um, you know, felt like a, 
a really special moment so far in, in my artistic career. But I, I definitely, uh, there's a side of my brain that I go to for that sort of stuff that, you know, I, I don't for other things. <laughs> <laughs> Those horses were very scary. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, that was my goal. <laughs> Switching tax a bit. Do either of you think that there's anything that non-horror games should take or learn from horror games? I do. I mean, I think that something that I really love about particularly survival horror games is it doesn't rely so heavily on combat, uh, especially gunplay. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see games, particularly AAA games, um, you know, for designers to challenge themselves more, to try to find uh, what I think of as a way out of um, what feels like the only way we know how to approach combat in AAA. Please. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it isn't to say that, you know, the gun combat and things that they can't, that it can't work or feel satisfying in the game. But, uh, you know, I just, I play games like Outlast or, or the Blair Witch game by, by Bloober. And, you know, they tend to, then um, th- those games in particular, they don't have any combat and you're, you know, that the gameplay is, is that you're using these cameras uh, to navigate the environment, to help you through that environment. And you're relying heavily on it for your survival. Uh, and it's, it just feels like a really feels novel, I guess, you know, and, and um, I would love to see every genre try to tap into that and, and ask the player to problem solve in a different way. I'm holding my hands in the air and saying, preach to you. (laughs) (laughs) No more shoot boy games (laughs) or less. Just for a little while. Just a little bit. Graham. I guess I'm having trouble figuring out in my head. I don't know. I, 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 it's all conflating with horror movies and non horror movies as well, as well as games. Um, Because I, this, this comes down to what I was saying earlier about, uh, how how you interpret horror and and um which is really just a reflection of the the thing i grapple with in my head all the time and you know uh i don't know if anyone else does but like my there are horror games and there's also just the use of horror in games and both of those things have had a lot of um had made really good strides uh in terms of like how to express stories and ideas in a way that other genres may not have uh felt they could access um mm. because horror gives you that permission um mm-hmm. because you can be a little more stylistic you can be a little um but i like weirdly despite the question being what can you find in in or what can other types of games take from horror i'm like i'm i keep finding my brain saying to me well i think there's things that horror and things that use horror could learn from other games as well, uh, which is a inverse of the question and completely doesn't answer. But like what? Um, but I, I feel like a lot of times horror is treated like a thematic or, or like a, like a so much like a genre that it, it requires a certain aesthetic or requires a certain set of uh, it's, it's like um, 
it's like in order to be punk, you got to wear a spike bracelet and have a mohawk or something, yeah. you know? And, right. and like, is that what punk is? I don't know. I mean, I guess to some people and that's fine, but I like, I, you know, it's a lot of things. And, um, I think with horror, similarly, there's a lot that could make horror and the use of horror even better. Um, the more that it embraces the idea that it doesn't have to be always have to be like what you think of as horror. And I think that's, yeah. can be very freeing. And then you can get like, I don't know. Here, uh, as a, I like, I'm, I'm so struggling with having a good answer for this. Cause I have so many, <laughs> so many thoughts like about two different industries that like are com- combined. But for example, uh, I have not seen the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre mo- movie that just came out on Netflix. Um, I've heard mixed things and uh, it sounds like they did a, a, a cool job for what, that that movie uh, is intending to be. Um, But one thing that I've heard about it that is not true of the original is that the original has almost no on-screen gore or blood or anything of that. It is, it is about the Hitchcockian Mm -hmm. um, collaboration with the viewer. And uh, I think that that is something that gets lost in the genre of horror because you got to have your kills, you got to have your big, you know? Yeah. And, people forget that like the most brutal ones in Texas Chainsaw Massacre are happening in the viewer's heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, how can they forget that we talk about this all the time? And yet it still manifests this way uh, in uh, things that um, are meant to be or evoke the, the original, but then don't take this approach. And I think that's true in horror games to, to an extent where um, the tropes and like, uh, uh, stylistic uh, flourishes of horror take a front seat to the, I don't want to say like the characters in emotion, emotional uh, content, but um, I think the emphasis on those surface level things are less important than mm-hmm. um, they could be. Um, I don't know a better, uh, a more eloquent way to say this, but I feel like this is just something like that has happened in the last 20, 30 years, which is the entire life of video games so far, but genres have started calcifying and, you know, with weird saying, you know, I'm 40 and I remember a time when like every game was an experimental game because there was no thing yet. It just, everything Mm -hmm. was experimental and I'm starting to really feel that change and that, that just like wigs me out. Like I really, Mm -hmm. really want people to be just trying shit. And yeah. collaborating with the audience in a way that, it, you know, is experimental and uh, blows people's minds. And um, there are lots of lots of games and people that do. Uh, this is not to say that there aren't. Um, but yeah, th- this is a non-answer to the question. But this is where I went. <laughs> well, I, I like it. Yeah. I like it though because I think it. it, it the the thing that really caught my attention, Graham, was this idea that this Hitchcockian idea of like, you know, sort of hiding whatever this thing is, it's not really something you see in games and in horror games. Um, you know, we always see the creature. Um, and you know, we get this, we have people that specialize in creature design. They come in and they, you know, design these crazy, crazy creatures and the 3d artists want to put all this detail in them so that, you know, when the shot happens, you can see all this work and, you know, it's beautiful. It's great. And there's definitely room for it, but I'm hard pressed to think of a horror game that 
that allows the player to just imagine what they're afraid of most to, to leave that up to them to decide. There's only like a few things I can think of in Silent Hill 2 that are handled by uh, Kira Yamoka, the sound designer mm. and composer. He, um, you know, incorporated certain creature sounds um, off camera and, and you'll sometimes just hear them once. Sometimes they'll only trigger once. Um, so you can't make them happen again, or sometimes they'll be on a loop. Um, there's, you know, I think a part in the apartments um, where you hear like a very strange sound in the prison um, in the cells. There's some sort of like very heavy sounding creature that's sort of chanting. Um, and so you're trying to figure out like with the, how big it sounds, how could it possibly even be? in one of these cells like how does it fit what does it look like so there's something like deeply upsetting about that imagining uh, and not knowing to this day what that is i mean people have broken the game and flown the camera <laughs> into those cells and there's nothing in there right gotta like, know. Yeah, yeah um but you know that's just something for me with horror i love i don't want to see the thing in most cases um yeah. some sometimes it, there's a payoff i think with like um the ritual i, I thought the creature design was really amazing in that and um really really cool uh creature design but you know i think at, on the, the at the same time it was a little bit scarier when you're just seeing you know the the weird um kind of like effigy and the cabin and and um you know hearing things in the woods and it sounds big it's moving trees and you know how can something conceivably that big can can conceal itself in this environment so there's all these questions that end up getting answered um and sometimes i think that it can fall flat depending on you know what scares you and so often i feel like with a particular a lot of creature designs um i'm just like ah it's cool but i i don't that's not scary to me you've shown me now that it's you know it's just a big blob or a bunch of bodies stuck together or whatever. Yeah, I, th I think there's a uh, there's something that's happened in movies and in TV and in games in general over the last 30 years. It doesn't have to just do with games, but it's very pervasive, which is this sense of sort of risk-averse, mm. like we have to answer every question, otherwise people won't be satisfied. And right. there's a, a validity to that to some degree when you get something like lost, which doesn't seem interested in answering certain questions after a while, because there just may not be an answer mm -hmm. and it, it frustrates people. Um, but then I think like I look at movies like the changeling, which is one of my favorite horror films and it's just an incredible film on every level. And it's so scary and so mysterious. Once the film answers all the questions, it goes on for five, 10 more minutes. And there's just, it's, it's deflated. There's nothing mm -hmm. left. It's just kind of going through the paces. And, you know, that, that type of thing where you're having the audience collaborate with you and wondering, you know, you're, you're, you've got their trust and you're playing them a sound and they're wondering what that thing could be that shouldn't fit in that space. And they're, they're doing those mental gymnastics and fitting their brain into a, a you know, a, a, a mental image of something that's impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that is that needs to then be like built into the fabric of like what we're okay with as storytellers and I think that's that's been pushed into a realm of not being commercial or mainstream or what and that and I don't think that's true I think that's that's part of 
going back to like Eisenstein, this is the film school person in me coming out, like the Kuleshov effect. And like you put one piece, one frame of a guy looking, uh, looking intently and then another shot of a, a bagel and you cut them together and your brain goes, that guy wants to eat that bagel. That's the Kuleshov <laughs> effect. You're, you're doing the cinematic alchemy in your head. That, that like thing that's happening in between those two frames or like in the, um, the Scott McCloud uh, talking about comic books, it's blood in the gutter. It's the thing that happens between the two panels. A guy's holding up an ax and then the next shot, uh, a person's head is chopped off. The blood in the gutter between the panels is the thing you imagine. And that is such an intrinsic part of the storytelling. If you show it, it doesn't stick and it doesn't affect and it doesn't like have the impact that it does of letting the audience be the glue. And I think we just need to let the audience be more collaborative with us in the way that we tell these stories. Yeah. I did think of one game or a studio that does try to do, you make a mechanic out of suggestion, which is frictional where in Soma, there is a creature that chases you in a couple sequences. And if you look at it in like during the sequence, your vision blurs and you start like, you can't, you can barely make it out like the silhouette. And if you look at it too long, you'll pass out and black out and die. Which I think is the same thing that happens in Amnesia, where yes. the monsters you'll look go insane if you look at them. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. That that's that's a great example. I think that that's really really cool. Um, and it's it. I think it's powerful too because it's it's saying that just merely looking at this thing is so overwhelming. Like your brain can't even handle it. You yeah. just you know all your senses shut down and you pass out. <laughs> yeah. I refuse to play Amnesia, but I remember when I would watch videos of people playing it. I remember my favorite one was like a guy on one side of a long hallway and then he could hear something coming. He's like, where is it? Where is it? And then he's got like his lantern. He's like putting up and putting down because he can't use his lantern too much because it'll run out of oil. And then the door at the other end of the hallway opens and you just see, like you see the glimpse of like a tiny silhouette. He goes, oh shit. And then he turns around because immediately he starts going insane looking at it. And you just hear it chasing him. And it was so terrifying even to watch that. I mean, it's it's with the Blair Witch Project. The original one did so well, and um, yeah. I, you know, and then just from a mechanic standpoint, I think someone like Sam Barlow. That's like his whole approach to games is like just giving you pieces, mm-hmm. and all of, all of the narrative work is being done in your head because you're just getting pieces, mm-hmm. yeah. and there's never a, like a linear explanation of any of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that that's always going to be unsatisfying for you know um, a certain audience. You know, I think horror so often is is considered a more niche genre. Um, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. I think a lot of people like being scared. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why theme parks work. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think that there, there's validity in, in more developers, you know, playing with, with that concept of, of less is more. And, and how can you, if, if so much is about interactivity and the player experience you know are you willing to relinquish some of your artistic vision in that respect to the player and you know allow the scary thing to be whatever is scariest for them yeah and i think on a visual side too it's just a unlocked a a memory uh, of will biles telling me a long time ago 10 years ago or so when we were first working on until dawn on the original PS3 version, he was saying he was having such a hard time getting the, um, 
the team, I don't know who, any person in particular, or just the, 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 maybe even just Sony or somebody, um, on board with the idea that in a dark area, it would drop to black and there would be nothing there. There would be no information. And they were like, well, no, you can't. It can't you can't let it be all black. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, no, that's scarier. You cannot know what's over there. You mm-hmm. can't turn up your brightness. You can't see detail. You can't see edges. And it, it's part of it is like we're now in this era where like HDR is is huge and like well we yeah. should be able to you know see everything that uh, exists in a space uh, at some level. There should be some visual. And it's like well that's part of the choice of cinematography and photography. Right. You know as long as it's been around and painting has been too obscure. Yeah. And obscuring is just as valid a tool as revealing. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, and I think it, it's I've I've had that experience, had that personal experience of navigating that conversation with with directors or with you know various members of the dev team who sort of feel like, well, we've done all this work. What do you mean you're just going to put it in low light? You know, nobody's going to see it. Nobody's going to see the hard work. They're not going to see the amazing work we've done on these micro expressions. And you know, it's like it's okay. It's, it's usually not, you know, we're not asking for the whole game. We're we're asking for these, these tonal moments. Um. So (laughs) we had a technical difficulty, but we're back. So now we're switching to each episode. We have our guests ask a question to our next episode's guests. And in our last one, we had Alyssa Wong and Lauren, me ask these questions and they both asked too. So Alyssa asked, what is one monster or weird thing that you haven't explored in a project yet that you really want to write or create art about and why? I feel like whenever I find something that I really want to explore, I immediately start writing it because I, it consumes me to the extent that I can't think about anything else, um, which is really great, but also a hard question to answer because if I figured out what it was that I really wanted to explore right now, I would just immediately <laughs> have to write these ideas down. Um, but, but like, you know, I, I think a better answer to that is that I, I always am interested when I'm doing my own work, not work for hire or a collaborative thing necessarily, but my own work, the standard that I hold myself to is I have to be doing something that I haven't seen before, but in the sense that I haven't seen someone take the approach that I would like to take with it. Like for example, dead wax is not an original idea in terms of there being a piece of cursed media and being music or whatever else. But the way into that for me was about this particular character and her place in the world and what she was going through. And I hadn't seen that. And I wanted to see that. I just wanted to see that expressed. It's like, it's almost like it, I just want it to exist. And that's the thing that I like, I have to, if I find something like that, that I just haven't seen existing yet, I just, it's, it consumes me. Yeah. Good answer. That is a good answer. I don't have one. Can I, can we, can I answer the other question or do I have to answer this one? Cause I will. <laughs> we can come back to it. Yeah. We can come back to it. <laughs> okay. Yes. Let's do that. Let's come back to it. Think a little uh, about it. Alyssa also asked if you had infinite money, what hiring decisions would you make to staff up your dream writing or art team? And what kind of folks with different backgrounds would you look at? I think this kind of goes into what we were talking about, about obscuring thing, obscuring things and less is more that I'm much more interested at this point uh, in my career and seeing 
or I guess in having some limitations, you know, I don't think having a, a huge budget, I mean, it's amazing. Don't get me wrong, but you know, I do think that just like with film, if there's some, some story you want to tell, but you, you just don't have the money to do it. Um, you're going to look for creative solutions that wouldn't otherwise manifest. Mm -hmm. And I think historically looking at horror, especially so many good things have come out of those limitations. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, uh, it's not necessarily having a huge budget, but if the exercise is to kind of like create a dream team, again, I think that, you know, I've got my favorite people to work with and I have my heroes, whether or not I'd want to work with them or not, maybe it's better not to <laughs> work with your heroes. But I think, you know, finding people that have, um, you know, the, the same goal, the, the same goal and, and wanting to accomplish the same things, uh, maybe it is more valuable than, than working with a specific person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. That, that, that last point, especially I agree with it's, it's, uh, it, it's so important to find in collaborators, whether or not they have the same taste as you almost doesn't matter. And, um, that, that's why it's great to have a, a very diverse group of people around you, uh, in every sense of the word. But I think the thing that always has to be in place um, or else you're just doomed is that everyone you're working with and that you yourself as a leader of a team is able to express the underlying goal in a way that galvanizes people's um, inspired contributions that, and you, you have to, as a leader, be confident enough in your underlying goal and not be stuck in the details of that goal to understand and see when an unexpected suggestion actually expresses the thing you want to get to better than uh, whether somebody like just, you know, takes your specific idea and iterates it slightly. Um, and those are the best kind of collaborations and people who have different viewpoints than you very often are the ones who are going to have a much different way of doing something uh, to express that thing and find a, a way to make the project bigger than just any person working on it. And so whenever I've had to put together a group of people to work with, that's the thing I'm always looking for is like, can we find an underlying common ground, regardless of whether or not our working styles are at all similar. And the best collaborations I've had have come from those kinds of, uh, those kinds of pairings. I think that's such good insight. I also think that we sucked the joy out of that question. I think that we just <laughs> should have said, <laughs> I want Maynard to do the music. I will have Tool from a very specific year well, teleported to my studio. <laughs> I don't get the fun back in. Graham or Ashley too. Would you get John Carpenter to work with you? Oh. Would you pay know. John Carpenter? What if he, so I met him once and he was very, he was a very sweet man. What? Yes. Oh, um, he was really great. And I, I was like, I'm going to go up to him. I'm going to, I'm going to tell him how much escape from New York and the thing influenced me as a creator. And I just, um, it's just going to be real simple. And then I went up to him and I was like, movies, good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he was really sweet and patient as I stammered and tried to tell him how much his work uh, has influenced me. Uh, as an artist, but you know, I don't know again, like 
does anybody really want to work with their heroes? Is that is that a good idea? With I mean, I want to work with Ashley if she's my hero. Oh, yeah. thanks. That's nice. <laughs> Nick took my I mean, yeah, you guys are my heroes, of course. But <laughs> with Carpenter specifically, though, he'd be fun because he doesn't give a fuck anymore. It's true. He really doesn't. And yeah, I would, I would like to be a fly on the wall at least and kind of see what that looks like in action. I hope, like, if anyone from EA is listening to this, Get him to make a Dead Space short for the for the oh remake that's coming out. Just like, just Amazing. give it to him. Give him the money. <laughs> give it to him. <laughs> Incredible. Don't let him go out on the ward. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the premiere for the ward. Oh yeah, yeah. He uh, he he did the. I didn't get to meet him. He uh, he wasn't there. He <laughs> he didn't he, give a fuck. He didn't no, care. Like a boss. <laughs> he, just, he skyped it in. It was a drama. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it was fun to fun to be at a John Carpenter premiere after growing up, you know, worshiping him. But like, yeah, yeah I, I think that I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I'd want to work with Carpenter or, or any of my heroes in that way, because I think I'm just past that point in my career where I feel like I don't know the way to say this. But if I was 20, 100 percent, I just want to absorb. Yeah. But I've spent the last 20 years defining my own sense of philosophy and style and tone and i would want to observe and be around but i don't know if i'd want to like work for or work with it just it feels like it seems like i don't know i, I have a weird complicated thing to this i i also like i, I uh Here's a dumb way to answer this question. Um, I'm coming up with a lot of dumb ways to answer questions today <laughs> because I just I have a very contradictory brain that just doesn't want to answer anything. <laughs> uh, when I went to, and I, I've probably told you guys the story, Max and Nick, but when I went to um, England to uh, do the the press tour for Until Dawn, I hadn't played it yet, uh, the full version of the game, and uh, I was coming from New York uh, after traveling, and then I took this red eye and. They flew me in business class, which was really exciting. I'd never done that before, and um, I'd never been in a lounge before in a um, in an airport. And it was the British Airways lounge at um, in uh, New York, JFK. So it was sort of really fancy. And uh, who walks by in the the little line for the you know the little uh, tongue and fork salad bar thing? But Francis McDormand and Joel Cohen, wow. and oh, wow. I'm like, you know, the Cohen brothers are just you know they're up in the top two or three of all, all the you know filmmakers it's like and especially for dialogue which is what i you know spent the last two years doing prior to that writing for until dawn and just you know hammering into like drilling into the the you know the finest detail of like how dialogue works and what it can do and i just in my brain i was like i can't just go up to him as a fan and it's weird because I, sh why shouldn't I? Like I'm nobody, you know. I haven't done this game hasn't even come out yet. It doesn't matter. But I just like it. Just feels like I want to be able to actually talk to my heroes and not yeah. just gush to them. Sure. And you know, being in the film and television industry, occasionally you get you do get to do that when you stick around long enough. And like getting to work with Ted Raimi, for example, on Dead Wax. And then becoming friendly with him, it's like, oh right, he's he is just a person. Yeah. But if you walk up to someone and you're just, and you, uh, and this isn't uh, in response to uh, Ashley's story, because if I met John Carpenter, I would literally do the same <laughs> thing, um, which is why I can't ever meet him. Um, but uh, and like someone like Lynch too, I I don't know what I would say to Lynch uh, unless it was like in a situation where we could 
talk uh, and share notes or compare yeah. process. I would love to do that with so many people, but I don't know if I could, like, I just don't even know if it's possible to do that. Um, and at the same time, Larry Fessenden was one of my heroes and is one of my heroes. And I remember going to Blockbuster in the nineties and running habit and, uh, just being like, Oh my God, this guy made, uh, indie New York vampire film. This is the kind of filmmaking. This is the thing. And then, you know, 10 years later, we're writing until dawn together. And like, it's amazing that get to do that and become friends with him. And I've gotten so much out of that. So like, in a way I have gotten to work with another, my John Carpenter, which is Larry. That's awesome. That's really cool. Good answer. Uh, It took me a while. (laughs) (laughs) We got there. So Lauren asked, do you have a guilty pleasure in your writing and or the art you make a little something that makes you happy that you sneak in? Define guilty pleasure. You define it. (laughs) (laughs) No, you define it. Um, well, I, I, I can say that I, I don't really truly believe in guilty pleasures. I know what uh, she means. Uh, I, I think if you like something, you like something. Um, and to me, that is being a dad and liking really dumb puns and really dumb jokes. And, uh, <laughs> we put a lot of mental on and like, weirdly, it's the thing that sticks with people. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like that was permission to just be the worst. Love <laughs> and, it. Love it. I think for me, it's horror. And because I, you know, I haven't really gotten to work on a lot of horror, um, you know, uh, personal work, of course, but work for other people. Um, so, you know, a lot of a lot of my concept work does have, a, I think, have a little bit of a horror slant to it, whether it's the lighting or the um, just the feeling of it. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, when I can, I will sneak the way that certain horror feels to me into pieces if I feel it's appropriate and I can get away with it. You never sneak in some Final Fantasy VII references? I don't. <laughs> Maybe I should try. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lauren also asked, what are you most jealous of in your favorite story or piece of art? What about it? Are you like, damn, I wish I did that? <laughs> That's such a good question. And I really like that one. It's so embarrassing. It's such an embarrassing question. <laughs> it's really good, but it's also like, um, well, I, I can say right off the bat that like, uh, and this is sort of um, a conflict because I'm friends with him now, uh, friendly with, uh, but the, everything that Sam Barlow has done, whenever, I, when I played her story for the first time and then later when I played Telling Lies, it was just like the fucking risk that that, is like the just like oh yeah it's a game but guess what you're just seeing little tiny pieces of video that you have to have good i don't know like google ability like you just have to know how to search stuff well like, that is not anything but he made it a thing and like i just look at that and i'm like that is such like breakthrough next level thinking outside of the the cube thinking i i it just invented a new way of telling a story and that how often does that happen you know like mm-hmm. that that just blew me away and I, i'm so excited to see anything he does because he's just always looking for those ways to to tell a story in a way that hasn't been done hell yeah hell yeah <laughs> kite man <laughs> i think for me um you know again going going back to silent hill which you know it's just been so incredibly influential for me when I look at the work of Masahiro Ito, who is the creature designer, uh, 
for the, the first couple of games. And I look at a character like the red pyramid thing or pyramid head. Uh, I just think like, what? Like, really? It's just, it's just got a fucking triangle on his head. It's got a triangle <laughs> on his head. You know what? Uh, and it's just so brilliant and it's become so iconic you know, and people have tried to do different versions of it, like in the movie, and they make them all like buff and naked and tall, and it's not. It's like Wolverine, right? It's like not the character anymore. You know, he's this weird little, you know, squirrely kind of figure uh, with this strange industrial geometric shaped head. And then the question of, you know, what's under the head? Is there anything under the head? Is the is the pyramid itself the head? Like. Uh, I just think that's a that's so brilliant and and feel it feels very easy and basic. I know that it's not, you know, as an artist, and and that's part of, you know, the the expertise of, of a, a great artist is making something look easy, right? And like anybody could have thought of it. He did. He thought of it. Um, and yeah, so I, I often look at that creature design and think like, damn, like you know, no nobody will do it better than that. Anytime you just put something on somebody's you know body some shape on somebody's body it's it's never going to beat pyramid (laughs) wish i would have thought of that so is that your answer to Alyssa's earlier question about what is one monster or weird thing you haven't explored in a project i feel like i i killed two birds with one stem perfect (laughs) i meant to do that you want to make your shape monster (laughs) yes (laughs) well i think that it's true too that like uh you know what you're saying about a pyramid head and and it being so simple but also just like just no one had done it like it's just such a weird risk that like i'm thinking like thinking about what makes something iconic is like going back to mario and like just it's a short italian plumber jumps into pipes and stop like stomps on turtles and eats mushrooms like it's just nonsense yeah but it it's so sticky because our brains Mm -hmm. are like i guess there are connections here that kind of work underneath and it just fits together and and that is such a weird risk that was so okay in the early days of video games and is so more difficult so much more difficult now because there is an expectation of like well we've got to like put all this energy into uh making our giant insectoid mm-hmm. uh like dripping flesh monster that will look kind of the same as every other dripping yeah. flesh insectoid monster yeah and it doesn't move the internal needle and the and it doesn't become iconic um yeah like we all love stranger and this is not a knock against stranger things but we all have stranger things but like i can't visually remember what any of the creatures from that look like at all like they're just kind of no. they they just mush together into my head and and not in a way where it's like obscured you see them a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. but then they just kind of disappear you know in your brain yeah yeah and, and you know the the pursuit in my experience is all the, the directive is always make something iconic as if you can, uh, you know, something becomes iconic after the fact it's impossible to go forth with the intention to, to make something that resonates as much, uh, as you know, any of these examples. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like a, it's like a Zen koan. <laughs> you just have to not want it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> to not care. <laughs> But I think it's it's important. It's like you have to just do what feels in like honest it's in true. your head about you know, and then yeah. that that will resonate with people. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
And then what's a storytelling related question that you'd like our next guest to answer? I no, don't it, limit to one because Ashley has her pack I of questions. Yeah. Three of them. <laughs> Ask as many as you want. <laughs> uh, you want me to go, Graham? I'll sure. Since, since you've got so many, why don't okay, you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you I'll just. Uh, I mean, you guys. Uh, you guys can pick whichever one you think is great. My questions are: What sort of imagery do you find most evocative in horror? Second question Keep. is. If you could remake any horror IP, what would be deserving to be remade? And the mm. last one is, what absolutely destroys your immersion when watching, reading, or playing horror? Yeah, these are all good questions. Keeping all those questions. Keep them. Yeah. <laughs> Graham can have one. <laughs> those are all really good questions that, that uh, could, could like people could have thoughtful answers to. Mine is so... I. I swear this, I had this question before going on a bunch of tears about this, <laughs> but, um, but my, my question is about player agency and the collaboration of the player. And it would be when thinking about telling a story or expressing a story in whatever part of the storytelling you're involved in, how do you incorporate the collaboration with the player or the viewer or the reader or whoever is on the receiving end uh, so to speak of of the medium uh, and uh, and how much do you uh, factor that into your creative process? That's not a half question. That's a whole question. <laughs> it started as a half question, and then uh, the he worked on it when he went to the bathroom earlier. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. yeah. I wrote I wrote this all down. <laughs> okay, I think that'll wrap it up. So then, uh, our last thing is uh, where can people find you, both in the internet, if you want to plug any like socials or whatever or any work you've got coming up um please don't follow me on any <laughs> social media <laughs> uh if you absolutely must i'm coyote hackles all one word on twitter uh if you want more art centric um stuff you can go to my instagram which is uh, a swadowski art all one word we'll link in the show notes graham uh, well, I'm at Graham Resnick on Twitter and Instagram, and if you like uh, records and uh, pictures of my little kid doing things every once in a while, uh, that's a great place to see pictures of records and my little kid doing things. Um, and there's a Z in my name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as far as things coming up, I have a lot of music that has uh, long been delayed because of vinyl production issues, but should be coming out soon. Uh, and I just finished uh the sound design on my old pal ty west's new film x uh which a24 is putting out should be out uh about a few weeks after this podcast i think looks uh, fun yeah it looks really awesome. wild that'll be that'll be in theaters or whatever graham i'm gonna follow you on twitter <laughs> okay oh, don't but don't follow her don't oh, yeah. follow me though please <laughs> Please don't follow me. Don't look uh, at her. Very... Don't, don't perceive me. <laughs> Just like Pretend the monsters. Just don't, can't look at yeah, her. I'm much scarier if you, you don't actually see me. Um, I want to point out real quick in our um, undercast, it says Ashley Graham take two. Yes. Ashley Graham is the character's name in Resident Evil 4. What? It's relevant oh, to wow. our conversation. Fuck. It was meant to like fuck up in the middle of the recording. <laughs> uh, well, last housekeeping from Nick. Um, <laughs> our music was done by Isabella Ness, and our logo was done by Lily Nishida. 
who's amazing. Who are both amazing. And you can follow this podcast on Twitter at ScriptLockCast. And I think that's everything. Uh, Leave reviews on iTunes. Sorry, we've been off for five months with making the show, but we're making more now. And we'll try to be consistent. But leave some good reviews if you feel compelled to. And we'll make even more. Yeah, we're going to keep making these. And thank you both again for coming on. This is amazing. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you.